Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16 is where we are going to start our time this morning. Last week, we ended our three-year-long three study in the Gospel of John. On the one hand, I am incredibly sad that it's over. I have loved being in that Gospel. I've learned so much, and I've seen Jesus more clearly than ever before. It has been such a joy to be in that gospel. But on the other hand, I'm really excited to look into a new study to see Christ in the exact same way. We want to see Christ, and that's really everything that I want to do in church ministry, everything I want to do as a pastor until the day I die is just open the Bible and see Jesus. That's what I want to do. I want to open the Bible and see Jesus for myself. I want to open the Bible and see Jesus with others. I want to show forth the glory of Jesus. I just want to see Christ. So though we won't be doing that in the book of John, we are going to be seeing Jesus this whole summer as we highlight and spotlight the miracles of our Savior. When God does one thing, as we say often here, he's doing a billion things. So when he does miracles, he's doing so many things inside of those miracles. So as we study, we'll study different narrative passages that give us uh, just one picture, one glimpse into the glory of God in a miracle of Jesus Christ. And we're going to just see, we're going to dive deep into them and see what God is doing when he does the one miracle. He's doing a billion things. Sometimes what is meant to be understood and seen through a miracle is obvious. It's straightforward. It's clear. But other times when you come to a miracle, you kind of scratch your head and you wonder, why is this being done the way it's been being done? What's the purpose of this? Matthew 16 is where I wanted to begin our time. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus, right after feeding the 5,000, which is more like the 25,000 because the gospel writers say 5,000 men, specifically males, and there were probably women and children with them, so 20 to 25,000 people. And then Jesus fed 4,000 people, so that one's actually 4,000 people, which seems like, oh, that's, that's nothing compared to 25,000, but still 4,000 people that Jesus fed with nothing, just produced food for the people. After those two miracles, in the boat, they're in a boat, Jesus and his disciples. Verse 6 in Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's it. I just think there, there have to be so many moments when Jesus says something and he sits back down and he just has to smile, knowing the disciples are going, what do you mean? He just stands up in the boat. Hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm taking a nap. And he goes away, and they, they scratch their heads. They look around. Verse 7, they begin to discuss among themselves, saying, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. What, what does he mean? We don't have bread. They're looking. Who brought a loaf of bread? Does anybody have bread? What is he talking about? Did the Pharisees give us bread? Did we buy bread from the Sadducees? What is this with bread? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up, or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? 
how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He said, you should have understood what I just said to you. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You should have gotten that because of the miracle that I did. The miracle that I did had so many facets to it, but one facet was teaching that you just totally missed. Then they understood, verse 12, they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there are miracles that Jesus does that are very straightforward. They're very obvious. They make sense. But there are some miracles like the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000 or 25,000 that you just kind of wrestle with. What's the point of this? And he even says there's a deeper teaching inside of it. So what I want to do this summer is highlight one specific miracle each Sunday morning, June, July, and August. And I want to press into these miracles so that we can get it, so that it wouldn't be said of us, oh, you have little faith. But we would understand very clearly what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate through the miracles. And when he's doing one thing, he's doing a billion things. So let's start in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, the first Miracle that we are going to look at, I considered doing an introduction to miracles, and I thought, you know what, if we just dive into this that's straightforward and obvious, and it gives us the meaning of miracles, if we just do that, that's our introduction. We don't need to have a separate introduction to miracles. We can just stare at one miracle and let it give us an understanding of what Jesus is doing when he performs these amazing miracles. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And Jesus was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. Such a familiar passage to many of us. We've grown up learning this story from a flannel graph. We've grown up hearing this story being taught in Sunday school. We've heard sermons on this account. And God, we want to come to this text afresh 
hearing it as if it were the very first time that we heard that you did this. Hearing it from Mark, who's hearing it through Peter, who is there. An eyewitness testimony to, to tell us, I was there, I saw everything that happened. God, help us to feel the gravity of what is taking place in these moments. So easy to turn your word into a textbook, and we don't want to do that this morning. There's no way anyone from this home, in this home, at this house in Capernaum, that Jesus performed this miracle, and there's nobody that's walking away from this scene saying, okay, what points of application do I need to live out? What, what, what new things do I need to do? They are just amazed at Christ. So help us to do the same. God, as we just get this entire summer to just stare at Christ, we want to be amazed. Sure, there will be implications for our lives. There will be application. But we want to press into the glory of Jesus. And we want to let his glory change us from the inside out the way that you want to do that work in our hearts. So may we not remain unaffected in our time this morning. Take us back to that moment in Galilee, in Capernaum, so many thousands of years ago. Take us back that we would feel as if we were there in the house as this is taking place. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, written by Mark, uh, he, he is getting all of his account from Peter. Peter is his eyewitness testimony. So it's really the Gospel of Peter as written by Mark and recorded by Mark. Mark's whole purpose in this Gospel is to prove to us, to show us that Jesus is king, but he's not king the way that you and I think he's king. And it really turns, it's 16 chapters uh, split right in half. Jesus is king, not in the way that you think he's king. But he starts off by proving that Jesus is king. And he does this at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, prophecies. Prophecies about the Messiah, about the king. It was foretold there's going to be one coming that is king. And Mark's telling his readers, Jesus is that guy. The next thing that he tells us is that there was a herald Back in Jewish culture, if you were to say, I'm a king, the first thing that somebody would ask you is, where's your herald? I haven't heard of you. If you're a king, where's the guy that was telling me that you were coming? We need a forerunner. We need somebody to pave the way to say, hello, hear ye, hear ye, the king's coming, and you need to get ready. Where's your herald? And if you don't have a herald, you can't be king. So Mark says, I got that one. John the Baptist, herald, boom, check. So prophecy, herald, there's a coronation, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. This is the coronation. This is God the Father opening up heaven saying, this is my beloved son. He is the one I'm well pleased in. The Holy Spirit descends, uh, begins the work in Christ, in his public ministry. And then the king has to have authority. If you say, I'm king, and somebody says, king over what? And you say, nothing really, but I'm a king. You have to have king, a kingly domain. You have to have authority over something. And so Mark tells us that Jesus has authority over Satan. He has authority over demons. He has authority over sin. He has authority over sinners. He has authority in his teaching. He has authority in the spiritual realm and the physical realm over disease. He has authority. He is king. But there's a problem. This is all in chapter 1. But there's a problem. And the problem is at the end of chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper. You can see it starting in verse 40. A leper comes to Jesus. He heals 
the leper, which is an amazing account in and of itself because Jesus is touching an unclean man, and instead of becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. But verse 43, once the leprosy is gone, Jesus sternly warns him and immediately sends him away saying, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. Don't tell anybody about this. Why is Jesus doing that? Because there's a problem. He has been performing miracles. People have been being healed. And now Jesus is being known nationwide as a miracle worker, a healer a magician, quote-unquote, to some people. Let's just go see what he can do. Let's go visit him to see his miracles. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come for people to say, let's go see his miracles. Jesus came for people to say, let's go hear him teach. Let's go hear about the gospel. So there's a problem. Jesus does not want people terminating their excitement on his healing capacity, on his miracle working. So he leaves. He goes out, verse 45, he leaves. The leper does not do what he had asked. So Jesus, middle of verse 45, could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, waiting for just the excitement to die down. Chapter 2, verse 1, when he comes back to Capernaum several days afterwards, we don't know how long afterwards, but enough time that maybe he's thinking we're done. Maybe the disciples are thinking it must have died down. The excitement has to be gone. But excitement overcoming into contact with the God of the universe does not die down very quickly. And so we see when people hear that he is at home, verse 2, many were gathered together so that there's no longer room, not even near the door. So we're in a house. People find out that Jesus is there and everybody starts clamoring and there's no room. There's people spilling out of the doorway. This is a fire hazard of ginormous proportions. But what does Jesus do? What do all of the people want in this moment? They want to see a miracle. And what does Jesus do? Middle of verse 2. He was speaking the word to them. You came to see me do a miracle, and I am preaching the gospel to you. I'm preaching the gospel. Jesus does not believe in the belief of the crowds. We saw this in the Gospel of John. Crowds are no measure of success. Jesus wants quality and not quantity. In fact, whenever you see crowds happening in the Gospels, they're usually really bad. They're usually saying bad things like crucify, crucify. Crowds are no measure of success. So as they clamor into this room and they're saying, we want a miracle, Jesus is preaching. But, verse 3, four men bring a paralyzed man. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, this question is going to be one of the dumbest questions that I've ever asked. But it has to be asked, and we have to remember it. Why are these four men bringing this man to Jesus? Why? They want him to be healed. Right? Most obvious question, most obvious answer ever. But you need to know, you need to feel, along with the friends and along with the paralytic, the whole purpose of this mission is to be healed. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So they bring this man, carried by four men. And apparently the crowd is not sympathetic to a paralyzed man. 
There's no handicapped zones. There's no parking space with a blue sign. Because verse 4, they're unable to get to him because of the crowd. So they are carrying this man on a pallet, and they're saying, excuse me, excuse me. And the people are saying, get out of here. (laughs) Who says that to a man on a bed being carried? They know. I mean, think of this crowd. This crowd wants to see Jesus perform a miracle. And we have the ammunition right here. And they're like, get out. We don't want, why? They're mesmerized by his teaching. They've shifted from we just want a miracle, we want a miracle, and now they're hearing his words that are more miraculous than even a miracle. So we have to find another way in. This unsympathetic crowd won't let them in. So they remove the roof, middle of verse 4, above him. They remove the roof. So try the door. The only logical next step is the roof. Okay, we tried the door. Now where we go? Roof. Now, there's so many commentaries about how this isn't the kind of roof we think of. This is just like mud slats that were on pieces of wood and bamboo or little uh, palm branches that you would just kind of lift up and, and put the person down. And it wasn't that bad. They're not digging a hole. You know what? It's a hole in a roof, okay? Just think of I'm preaching, and all of a sudden we just hear and then we just see sawdust coming down. and We wouldn't just go, eh, business as usual, right? We would stop. I would stop preaching. We'd kind of back up. We'd wonder. We'd probably move to the door. Somebody would go up to the top to see what is happening. This, we lose so much of the dynamic emotion of what's happening when we just read the Bible like a textbook. Press into the white spaces in the scriptures with sanctified imagination, smell the the dust of the the feet, uh, the sandals clamoring around, feel the drops of mud that would be falling on your head as the roof's getting opened up, see a sunbeam just go right into your eye, and what is happening as the roof opens up? And then you see a man being dropped down, and you're thinking, oh, that was the guy. You know, we should have just let him in. Like, (laughs) think of the owner. The owner of this house, what is he thinking in this moment? I think at the end of this miracle, this owner has to be thinking, great, we have a miracle worker, he healed this man, he can heal my house, <laughs> we're good, we can fix the house problem. But Jesus sees their faith. I don't know how they get exactly where Jesus was. I don't know if there's a guy eyeballing up at the top. I don't know if they try one place and it lands on people. Hey, what's that? And they bring it back up and they move it over, drop it down. But they find a perfect place where they drop him right in front of Jesus. Now, why did they do all this? Why are they going through all this work? Dumbest question I've ever asked. What do they want? They want him to be healed. What does Jesus do? Verse 5, he sees their faith and he says to the paralytic, Son, that's an endearing term, child, my child. What is this man thinking? We don't, we don't have time in this section. We don't have how long it took to finish the sentence. But Jesus says, my child, my son. The way I, t- I turn to my, my son, I say, hey, Buster, come here, Buster. Just, ah, oh, I love you. This man has to be thinking, I have met with approval with the Son of God. He's going to perform exactly what I'm wanting. 
And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we have no record of what happens immediately after that with the friends and with the man. It just jumps straight to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what? What is this man thinking? Son, your sins are forgiven. I've always thought that he's lying on the pallet and he hears, sons, your sins are forgiven. And, and he hears, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you want to hear something so badly that you hear it, even though that's not what they said. And so he just sees Jesus turn to him, son, your sins are forgiven. He says, yes, I'm healed. And he tries to get up and doesn't work. And he just kind of rolls over. Then he, he goes back. What did he say? Wait, your sins are forgiven? Thanks, but no thanks. That's not what I was asking for. What are the four guys up on the roof saying? That's not why we dropped him. Like, what are they saying? What did this man want? He wanted to be healed. This is where we're already starting to see what Jesus is doing in this moment. He is being so gracious. What he's saying to the paralytic and to the four friends is he's saying, the need that you think you have that you think is your deepest need, it's not deep enough. You have a deeper need than what you think is your greatest need. By coming to Jesus, asking only for his body to be healed, the paralytic and the four friends aren't going deep enough. And I believe that there are so many of us that do the exact same with Jesus. We, we use Jesus in the exact same way. Maybe it's not being paralyzed. Maybe it's not even a physical issue. But we think, God, if, if you could only fix my family, if you could just change my friends, if you could give me a spouse or give me children or give me the right job or give me more money, then my biggest issue in life would be fixed. I'd be okay. Can you fix this? What is it in your life that you say, God, this is what I want fixed? More than anything, fix this. And God is going to say, just like he did with the paralytic, you know what? There's something deeper that needs to be changed. Jesus is showing us that the problem is much deeper. The problem is much more difficult to deal with. In fact, he alone can deal with it because he alone can forgive sins. I've heard it put this way. The worst practical joke that God can play on you is granting you your deepest wish. Now, obviously, God doesn't play practical jokes, praise the Lord. But the point remains, whatever you think is your deepest need if God were to give that to you, that's the worst thing he could possibly do because that's not what's going to satisfy you. We don't even know our deepest needs. Just think of this man. I just want to be healed, and if I'm healed, I will never forget this moment. It would be awesome to walk again. But I can guarantee you the euphoria of that moment would wear off. I don't know if you guys have broken bones before. I've broken my thumb. I've broken my ring finger. And every time that happens... I just think, you know, you do the shower with the, the thing over your cast so that you don't get it wet, and it's just annoying and frustrating, and you just never realize how much you use your fingers. And you think when you get the cast off, you think, I'm never again going to think of my finger in the same way. It lasts for a couple months, and every once in a while when it's really cold out, I'll go, oh, yeah, I broke my knuckle here. Um, it's kind of creaking. But I'm not walking around every morning, God, thank you that the cast is off. Thank you that I can use my thumb again. The euphoria has worn off. What Jesus is saying is there is something deeper, and I'm not playing that practical joke on you. 
I'm not going to give you what you think you want. I'm going to give you your deepest need. I'm going much deeper than you've ever dared to imagine. This point is perfectly illustrated in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia. We're reading that book with our kids right now, and I just cannot wait to get to this section, and I forgot how long into the book this section is. Eustace, a little boy that everybody hates, doesn't get along with anyone. And at one point in the book, they pull off to this island. He goes into a cave without everybody, finds all of this treasure, thinks, you know what, if I just get all this treasure, I can become rich, I can do terrible things to all the people and pay them back for what they've done to me. He falls asleep with greed in his heart, a dragonish, greedy heart, and he wakes up a dragon. And he's in despair because he thinks he's never going to be able to leave the island, he's never going to be able to get on the boat. So he tries to rip off the scales. He thinks, maybe I'm just a dragon on the outside so I can rip off the scales and we'll be good. But he can't shed the skin. He keeps trying. And then Aslan, the lion, comes on the scene and he tells Eustace, I will have to go deeper. I'm going to have to go deeper. You want something on the outside, I've got to go deeper. This is what Eustace says. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and then then I saw I'd turned into a boy again. It's hard to, to read those words. For some of us, it's hard to read those words without getting emotional because we hear exactly what Jesus has done with us. You know, I think, Jesus, I've got this. I can deal with this on my own. Thank you very much. And then Jesus says, no, I need to go deeper. And when he goes deeper, it hurts. But we see that he has done what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the biggest need, and I'm going to address that and not the paralytic issue. Verse 6, what's the reaction? Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? They're going to get very angry at Jesus for multiple things. Number one, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, and what did this man do? He didn't do anything. He just had faith to believe that Jesus could do everything. And that faith is the faith that saves. All they do is we need to get to Jesus, but that's all we can do is just get to Jesus and Jesus has to do all the work. Pharisees and Sadducees are not going to understand this because to be justified, to be declared righteous, to be forgiven, you need to do things in their mind. Their worldview, their religion is I do something, God forgives me. But Jesus has just demonstrated through this paralytic, you don't do anything, just come to me, and I'll do the work for you. So Jesus is already starting to tick off the Pharisees. He knows that they believe you have to earn a clean slate, and he just freely gives it. 
But even more than that, they say, middle of verse 7, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They get it. They get what Jesus is doing. No one can forgive sins except for God alone, and this man just claimed to be able to forgive sins. So this man's claiming to be God. I don't know if you've ever had that. That was one of the questions we went through with Marty in apologetics. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He claims right here to be God. And if there was any question, when the Pharisees say, you're blaspheming, he could have easily said, oh, I get what you're saying. I wasn't trying to do that. Please forgive me. My bad. This is not what I was trying to do. Instead, he says, you're right. That's exactly what I'm claiming, and I'm going to prove it to you. So if anybody ever says, Jesus never claimed to be God, you can go all over the Gospel of John, which we've done, but you can go here in Mark chapter 2. It's very clear he's claiming to be God. Now, why? Uh, let's say Adonis and Kyle are hanging out, and Adonis punches Kyle. Big punch. And I step up in the middle of this, and I say, hey, separate. And I say, Adonis, I forgive you. Kyle's going to say, uh, he hit me. He didn't hit you. You can't offer forgiveness. He hit me. I have to offer forgiveness. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is, son, you've committed sins against me, and I can forgive you of those sins. So Jesus says, I am God. You have sinned against a holy, awesome, infinite God, and that is me, and I forgive you. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, say he's blaspheming. But Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. I think he's planned this whole thing. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? What, what are you, what's it, where's the turmoil, Pharisees? Where's the turmoil, Sadducees? What are you struggling with? He's trying to get them to think. What's, what's the issue? You think that I do not have the power to forgive sins because I'm not God. But I want to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins because I am God. Now, how is Jesus going to do that? Verse 9, he asks a question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Now, which is easier to say? It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because how do we know? It's not like when your sins are forgiven, you just start glowing, or a halo just descends, sins are forgiven. There's no external manifestation of the awareness that that's happened. So Jesus could just willy-nilly, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and nothing's actually happening. It's much harder to say, get up and walk, because if Jesus can't make this man get up and walk, Jesus has been proven to be a fraud. It's much harder to say that. So Jesus says, verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you may know I can do the thing that you think is much easier to do. I'm going to say the harder thing and do it. I'm going to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. I'm going to say the harder thing and do it to prove that I can do this other thing that's invisible. I say to you, this is to the paralytic, and all of the three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say that he turns to look at the paralyzed man and speak directly to him. Verse 11, what does he say? I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, 
and go home. Now again, if the man doesn't do that, Jesus has proven two things. Number one, he's a fraud, and number two, he can't forgive sins. But if the man does exactly what Jesus said, Jesus has proven he is exactly who he claims to be, and he is God and can forgive sins. This is the introduction to our summer series because this is the whole point of miracles. When God does one thing, he's doing a million things. But when God does miracles, there is one primary reason that he performs those miracles. You can write it down if you want it. The primary reason that Jesus, or anybody for that matter, performs miracles is to validate the claims that they are making. Miracles are are for the purpose of validating the claims that you are making. Moses, in the Old Testament, book of Exodus. Okay, God, I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to say, let my people go, thus says Yahweh. His response is going to be, how do I know? Who is this guy? And what is God's response to Moses? Put your hand into your jacket, throw your staff down, perform signs and wonders that will confirm and validate the claims you're making. That's what the apostles do in the book of Acts. The reason why all of the miracles that happen in the book of Acts happen is because they're going into pagan nations. They're going to places the gospel has never gone. They're walking into a, a, country, a, um, a countryside where the gospel's never gone, and they say, do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know an infinitely holy God loves you? And he sent a Jewish man, and he died on a cross by Roman hands, and he rose from the dead, and if you trust in his finished sacrifice, you can be saved. Do you know that? And they think, this is baloney. A Jewish man crucified by the Romans, and you're telling me he's God? I don't buy it. Just like we've been studying apologetics, I think they go, you know, I didn't buy it either. I didn't buy it either. And then he rose from the dead. I didn't buy it either. And then I saw the miracles that he did. And guess what? Through his spirit, I can do the same miracles to validate the claims that I'm making. So why does Jesus perform miracles? He's validating the claims that he's making about himself. He says, I'm God. Everybody says, yeah, right. We, we grew up with you in Nazareth. We, we babysat you. We changed your diaper. You're not God. You're a nice man, but you're not God. And he says, watch this. He validates the claims that he's making. Now, there's a whole host of other things that Jesus is doing when he performs miracles. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's giving object lessons. He's making analogies. He's pointing us to a greater reality. He's giving us signs that point to something. He's loving the lost. He's helping the hurting. He's reversing the curse, and he's shining forth his majesty and glory. I love, again, C.S. Lewis when he talks about Aslan uh, being on the move in Narnia. It's always winter, and it's never Christmas, but when Aslan shows up, everything starts to melt, and spring starts to bloom. That's what's happening here. Jesus is showing us what the new heavens and the new earth and the millennial kingdom, what they're going to look like because the curse is being reversed wherever he steps his foot. But the primary reason, those are all secondary reasons. Those are great, glorious, amazing reasons that Jesus performs miracles. But the primary reason is to validate the claims that he's making. He says, I'm God, and I'll prove it to you. Now, some of those secondary reasons are great reasons. But if you turn those secondary reasons into primary reasons, like he is performing a miracle to help those who are hurting, to give food to those who are hungry. You just turn Jesus into a social gospel justice warrior. You just turn him into something that he's not claiming to be. Now, yes, we should feed the hungry. Yes, we should take care of those who are hurting. 
But if that's all that we do, and they have warm, full bellies, and they go to hell, then we are not faithful to be ambassadors for Christ and do our job in witnessing. We don't, we don't do one or the other. We do both. We share the gospel, and we provide compassion, and we love those who are needy and hurting. But if we just say, be warm and be filled, and we do not share the gospel, they might have an amazing life, and then they might die and spend an eternity separated from God. That's exactly why Jesus says to this man, your greatest need is your sins need to be forgiven, and then let's deal with the temporal issue. The greatest need of man is to escape the wrath of God and find safety and security in the person of God. The greatest need of man is for sin to be forgiven and for wrath to be removed and for reconciliation and relationship to happen. And that's why Jesus says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. That's our greatest need. Not the paralysis, but the heart. So he says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, I'll prove that that's happened by saying, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And what happens? Immediately, verse 12, immediately he gets up, picks up his pallet and leaves. Now, this is why we know that Jesus is not an amazing doctor. Many people would say, well, he's just a really good doctor. He heals people of their diseases. He heals people of their sicknesses. He's just a really good doctor. But this doctor, if he's just a doctor, is putting every other doctor out of work. No physical therapy needed here. This man has been paralyzed. We don't know how long, but he's been paralyzed. All of his muscles, all of his muscles are atrophied. Bones are fusing together. And Jesus just says, get up. And he gets up and walks out. Don't need to go to Brian Nix. Don't need physical therapy. Don't need to walk through. You need to get some strength back immediately. And you will see that in every miracle, except for one, that Jesus, and the one is purposeful, that Jesus, when he says, be healed, immediately the sickness is gone and all of the effects of the sickness are gone. It's not, oh, I feel better, but man, I just need to lie down. It's, I'm instantly cured and I can walk around like nothing ever happened to me. And what happens because of that? He leaves. The guys that were at the front of the door that were saying when he was trying to get in, no, excuse me, leave, are now, as he's walking through their midst, going, just walking, let the man pass through. What just happened? They were all amazed, middle of verse 12, and they were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is... This is something new. We've never seen this before. And I believe that that's exactly what Mark wants us to feel. We could go through application. We could go through, okay, here's what we get out of this. And some people do. Like, we need to be the friends that lower, Jesus, or lower people to Jesus. We need to be those people. You can do that. But the point of this passage is so easy and so clear to get. Stand amazed at Christ. There's nobody like him. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. Nobody ever will see anything like this. He stands alone as God, very God. He's proved it through his miracles that validate the claims that he's making about himself. Where does that leave us, especially as we come to the Lord's table this morning? Remember how Jesus said, which is easier to say? This is a very good question, because there's irony in this question. Which is easier to say... Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't check that. There's no physical evidence of that. It's much harder to say, get up and walk, because if I don't make this man get up and walk, I'm a fraud. 
But which is harder to do? Which is harder to actually do? It's easier to say, get up, your sins are forgiven. It's much harder to actually make that happen. And Jesus knows this. And he says, which is easier to say? Well, it's much easier to say something that you can't see internally happening. But, oh, it's much harder. It's infinitely harder. Jesus knows to make that actually happen in this young man's heart, I need to go die. It's a much easier thing for Jesus to heal somebody than to internally dive deeper into their hearts and heal their deepest need. Jesus knows that it's going to take the bearing of the wrath of God to enact forgiveness, to offer that in full. The shadow of the cross, as early as Mark chapter 2, is here over the life of Jesus. But he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross with joy because he wants to give to you your soul's greatest need, probably one that you didn't even need, know that you needed. We sing it so often. I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. You did the work to open my eyes to see, oh, what I've always been wanting is Jesus. I just didn't know it. I had a deeper need that he is meeting, and I am satisfied for all of eternity. That's what Jesus is going to do. He does that with this man. He's done that with so many of us. And I pray that if you're here this morning and you don't know the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through his finished work on the cross and through the resurrection, I pray today that you would hear him say your sins are forgiven and that you would see he's touching the deepest need that you have and he's caring for you like no one else but God can. Father, that's what we will celebrate today as we come to this table to the elements that you have given to us to partake of. God, we come with joyful hearts because we know our sins have been forgiven, not because of anything we could do. We were paralyzed. We were brought by your Holy Spirit at your feet, and not just paralyzed, we were dead. And you breathed life into our dead, stony hearts, and you gave us an appetite for Christ and now we are satisfied and we want more of him because he first loved us. So God, I pray for two things, just very practically in these moments. Number one, help us by your spirit to be amazed at Jesus. It's the whole reason we're doing this over the summer. That's the whole reason that this narrative is in the gospel of Mark, so that we would be amazed at Jesus. May we just be dumbfounded that the God of the universe would know us, would call us by name, would love us and stand amazed at him. And then God, may we be pointed by the sign of this miracle to the reality that he is God. He does forgive sins. He can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And since Jesus is able to forgive sins, that makes him God. And so as we see these miracles validating the claims that Jesus is making about himself. May we bow the knee to him in worship, in awe, in reverence, and in thanksgiving. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
for his glory. Amen.